Disasters, True Stories, narrated by Brad Carty. The explosion of the AZF factory, to loose in turmoil. At the end of the First World War, the Treaty of Versailles forced the German chemical group BASF to make public its know-how and manufacturing secrets. The victorious allies, and in particular France, seized it in the wake of the war without suspecting for a second that it could be a poisoned gift. In 1924, the city of Toulouse, France, welcomed the ONIA, which specialized in the production of agricultural fertilizer using the Haber-Bosch process. This method made it possible to synthesize ammonia, a very expensive commodity at the time, imported from Chile and costing hundreds of millions of francs every year. Propelled by the hydraulic power of the Garonne, the activity flourished. 2,000 employees worked there full-time, and a housing estate called Pappas was even built nearby and was exclusively dedicated to them. Small three-story buildings for the workers, pavilion residences for the executives. Then, in the new century, ONIA became AZF. The plant covered more than 173 acres and was the world's leading producer and exporter of ammonium nitrate. At the same time, the natural expansion of the city was bringing the industrial area, which is only three miles south of the center, dangerously close. Within a radius of nearly 1,700 feet, the Gerard Marchant Hospital was already located near a shopping area and two high schools. Over a mile away was the popular Morel district with its 30,000 inhabitants. The latter had never ceased to alert the authorities to the potential risks of accidents. AZF is classified Seviso II and required a high level of prevention. It would have been necessary to move the population or the operation, but no one knew how to choose between the two. So time went by. People got used to it. It is well known that if you live next to the tracks, you end up not paying attention to the passing trains. On the morning of September 21st, 2001, Toulouse woke up peacefully under a cloudy sky. Despite a humid autumn wind, the weather forecast promised temperatures that would not fall below 61 degrees Fahrenheit. Life goes on. In the covered market of Saint-Cyprien, the merchants were shouting in front of their stands and luring customers. On the other side of the Gironde, the high school students of Saint-Cernin took advantage of a break and snuck out to smoke cigarettes on the sidewalk. While at the same time, in the Morel district, the teachers of a middle school abandoned the classrooms and launched a strike. Too many students and so few places available to accommodate them. The claim probably inspired a subject to some journalists in the middle of an editorial conference not far from the establishment. The hours passed by. At a nearby stadium, the local rugby team, the Rouge et Noir, was training for the next game. Meanwhile, at City Hall, Philippe Dust Blasé, comfortably installed in his office overlooking the radiant Place du Capital, was talking on the phone with French President Jacques Chirac. 10.17 a.m., end of the carefree period and the beginning of the tragedy. 
For some, it began with a huge flash illuminating the horizon. Others felt the walls of their apartment vibrate, their floor shake. In the street, the passers-by wavered, the asphalt rumbled under their feet. The incomprehension lasted for a fraction of a second. Then everyone heard, from more than 80 miles around, a monumental explosion. It will be learned later that a 3.2 magnitude earthquake was recorded. The blast swept away everything in its path. The windows of businesses shattered into a thousand pieces. The windows of housing estates came out of their hinges. Ceilings collapsed. On the entire southern part of the ring road, the cars were deported about 33 feet. Airbags inflated. Windshields were pulverized. The barracks were besieged with calls. The detonation was so powerful that it gave everyone the impression of having taken place just a few steps away. A gas leak in the neighborhood, a derailment in the subway, or even an attack in a shopping mall were all reported. We are far from counting. Between the affected buildings beyond the treetops, a thick column of smoke rose over the southeast of the city, itself soon overflown by a yellowish cloud smelling of ammonia. As one approached the epicenter, the landscape turned into an apocalypse, or rather into what follows. The highway bordering Toulouse was littered with debris, vehicles abandoned on the side of the road. Covered in white dust, silhouettes emerged from the mist, wandering like zombies, their faces bloodied, their clothes soiled. One would think one was in the middle of a war zone, caught under the bombardments, an otherworldly silence hung in the surroundings, interspersed with the sounds of random footsteps and sirens screaming in the distance, getting closer. It became clear that the AZF factory was at the origin of the explosion. Its chimney, usually visible from anywhere, had suddenly disappeared. On the spot, several acres of buildings were reduced to rubble and twisted beams and deformed metal sheets. In the middle, a lunar crater, 130 feet in diameter and 23 feet deep, was ripping open the earth. Television crews crowded the entrance to the site, filming its deputy director, who had a white collar stained with blood and a distraught look. Haggard, he answered the reporter's questions as best he could declaring that the first priority was to evacuate the unfortunate people trapped under the rubble. More than 500 employees showed up that day. Many of them would remain trapped for eight hours in complete darkness, without knowing if they were alive or dead. In the emergency, the prefecture set up the Red Plan, which included locating the disaster, estimating the resources necessary to intervene, and assessing the number of victims. A security perimeter was formed around the affected area, the fire department controlled the burning areas, and all health-related professions were mobilized. Residents were asked to keep telephone lines and roads clear and to stay in their homes, provided they did not have windows. The authorities also feared that the pipes used by ACF might be affected. If this famous mustard gas, invisible and deadly, which had been bombarded into the trenches by German artillery in 1917, were to spread, it would be a massacre. 
Toulouse was at a standstill. No more planes took off from the airport. So some people tried to flee on the freeway in panic, only to be slowed down by traffic jams at the exit of the city. In the afternoon, the local hospital was overwhelmed, displaying in its hall endless lists of names of people admitted. Families scrolled through them with fear in their stomachs, without news of their loved ones for too long. The damage varied from mild trauma, or cuts from shattered glass, to a much more severe rupture of the spleen. The shockwave also caused pleural detachment, and some burn victims were transported to military hospitals in Paris, Bordeaux, and Lyon. After effects also appeared over the long term. A 2006 study showed that, in a sample of 3,600 people affected by the event, 30% suffered from hyperacusis and tinnitus. In the meantime, at the end of the day, the television news announced a heavy toll. 30 dead, 2,500 injured, 30,000 homes damaged, 74 schools and 77 municipal services damaged. It is quite simply the worst industrial disaster that France has ever known. In the days that followed, experts worked hand-in-hand hand with the scientific police and suggested that the explosion came from AZF's Hangar 221, which stored 300 to 400 tons of ammonium nitrate. One week earlier, New York was hit by an attack on the twin towers of the World Trade Center. That spectacular image is still engraved in the retinas. The analogy is inevitable, and the national psychosis lurks. However, on September 24th, the public prosecutor Michel Briard reported on the initial findings of the investigation, favoring an accidental attack over an act of malice. It all started with a simple handling error, committed by a handler. A quarter of an hour before the detonation, he poured 500 kilograms of chlorine derivative next to a pile of ammonium nitrate that had been hastily stored. Laboratory experiments proved that combining the two products could cause sparks and devastation. Witnesses made the point, describing Hangar 221 as a garbage can that did not comply with the storage and safety conditions in force in the chemical industry. The blunder was not to be forgiven. Thousands of people in Toulouse demonstrated against AZF and demanded the closure of factories classified as Seviso II near the towns. Never again, they chanted in front of the capital. In the hope of calming tensions, but also with the aim of offering a moment of respite to the relief workers deployed on the front line, a free concert was organized on September 30th, an opportunity to collect a maximum of donations for the most needy. On June 14, 2002, the Toulouse public prosecutor charged nine AZF executives with manslaughter and unintentional injury following 24 hours of police custody. After refusing to answer to the judicial police, they were escorted to the central police station in a general state of silence, applauded by the factory employees gathered in support. At the head of the group, the owner of the site, which is a subsidiary of the Total Group, navigated through the crowd. The oil company was beginning to drag a lot of baggage. The sinking of the Erica three years before then the spilling of 3.8 tons of ammonium into the Garonne a month after the AZF explosion, 
under the guise of making the site safe and causing the death of 8,000 fish of 14 different species. It was too much for public opinion. The slogan, Total Assassin, was repeated in chorus in the demonstrations. One did not hesitate to speak of premeditated acts covered up by the government. Four years later, a final report, 700 pages thick, concluded a long investigation and sought to end the controversy by confirming the thesis of the accident. The trial opened on February 23, 2009, in the Jean Mermos Municipal Hall on the island of Ramir. Outside the courtroom, the crowd was clamoring for total executives to be killed, while behind the closed door, the defendants and their lawyers were not much better off facing 140 civil parties, that is, 1,813 plaintiffs, members of associations with evocative names like Victims AZF, Associations of Bereaved Families, etc. None of them could agree. Each one had his own truth about the affair, but all of them wanted someone to be designated as responsible. For the first time in France, the four months of the hearing were recorded in their entirety for history. The images will be made public in 2059, which will give them time to digest the most unexpected outcome. Pronounced on November 19th, the verdict acquitted the defendants. The judge did indeed find that the company had committed organizational errors, but he was unable to establish a clear causal link between the blunders and the damage caused. Total has been exonerated from the case, and the result was enough to make people cringe. Seven years of proceedings, 50,000 pages of files, 80 experts employed, a total cost of 7 million euros. The public prosecutor's office does not intend to leave it at that, having requested a three-year suspended prison sentence and a fine of 45,000 euros for the firm's chairman as well as a fine of €225,000 for the company. The civil parties feared the advent of industrial delinquency. The National Secretary of the Greens exclaimed, 31 dead, 2,500 injured, 85,000 victims, and zero guilty? The very next day, the public prosecutor's office appealed the judgment. A second round leads us to September 24, 2012 when the Court of Appeals reformed the initial decision. The company and its chairman were finally found guilty. Indirectly or not, their operating conditions led to the explosion. Either way, those responsible did not give up and appealed to the Supreme Court. The third and final trial in 2017, at the end of which the Court of Appeals of Paris put a stop to this story, one month's suspended prison sentence for the chairman and a fine of €225,000 for his company. Although the case was closed, several witnesses, journalists, and scientists could not believe this version of events. From the beginning, they questioned the premature statements of the prosecutor, only three days after the explosion, giving the conclusions of an investigation that had not yet really begun. 
The ways in which the possibility of an accident was confirmed from the outset so doubt, and that of a terrorist attack was so quickly dismissed, that the French state was suspected of covering up the trail in order to avoid general panic. The protesters pointed to several disturbing elements that were not mentioned, such as the discovery of the charred body of a worker near the crater, dressed in several layers of underwear in the manner of suicide bombers. As a counterpoint, there was the arrest of a fleeing vehicle by law enforcement, with two individuals connected to extremist groups on board. In both cases, the intelligence services received orders from their superiors to stop their research. On the evening of September 21, 2001, the head of the judicial police was quoted as saying, If Paris wants it to be an accident, it will be an accident. That's not all. Other inconsistencies have been demonstrated. A leading mathematician relied on several sound recordings, capturing two distinct explosions. In the investigation report, the anomaly is justified primarily by the echo that the detonation generated. The mathematics professor, however, demonstrated in an A-B report that the real epicenter was 2,600 feet from AZF, where the SNPE is located. The SNPE's activities are classified as secret defense, but they are known to supply fuel for the Ariane rocket. Other hypotheses are circulating, such as the fall of a meteor or an electromagnetic pulse captured by EDF a handful of seconds before the disaster, capable of jamming telecommunications and destroying electrical appliances. Conspiracy theories or state lies? Twenty years later, the question remains in the minds of some. The tragedy is of such a magnitude that it inevitably leads to various and varied accounts to the point that two distinct memorials were erected on the remains of AZF. Today, the municipality has inaugurated the Cancer Biohealth Center on the refilled crater, which specializes in medical research against cancer. Dedicating oneself to the fight to save lives in a place where death was so rampant, this is a good way to heal the wounds of a national trauma. However, one should not fail in the duty to remember and if ever a Toulouse resident manages to take the bypass without the terrible detonation resounding in his ears again, current events will not hesitate to remind him. On August 4, 2020, Beirut was devastated by an explosion caused by 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate stored in bulk in a warehouse in the port area. The toll set new records, 215 dead, 6,500 injured, between 250 and 300,000 Lebanese left homeless. Industrial delinquency, feared at the time, is now very real. How many more deaths and accidents do we need to see before the big companies assume their responsibilities and reinforce the safety of their activities? This negligence is not new and is part of an eternal repetition. Who remembers, for example, in 1781, the explosion in Toulouse of a powder factory set up by the Sun King. That event took place on a Friday, on September 21st, around 10 a.m. Did you like this episode? 
Feel free to comment, share, and rate it. See you soon for new stories. Midnight Studio, addictive podcast creator.